most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, hello again, everybody. It's great to see all of you. Uh, this is Buck Benny, and I'm here with Kathy Fuller Seeley, and we're here to talk about Orson Welles. And this episode is the first one I call Orson's traveling episodes because he's going to be different places throughout time. In this case, he's in his hotel room, and he talks about that for the first half of the show. But I'll let, turn it over to Kathy, and she can tell you more about what she liked about the episode. Well, I, I, I did think it was amusing in ways that we can still relate to today about being stuck in airports and things like that. And, um, and yet, still amazing to think about this guy is 30 years old. He's only 30 years old. And yet he can he has had the experiences and he's got the attitude of sometimes he's this great big star. Sometimes he's this intellectual genius. Sometimes he's this politician. Sometimes he's the civil rights and peace advocate. All of these rolled into one, which is, just makes these things fascinating to listen to. Um, I love his story about being stuck in, in Oklahoma City and, and people coming by and poking him and, you know, are you, go, are you the guy for the War of the Worlds and things like that. Um, I love his discussion of the tasty food at the pump room in the Ambassador Hotel in Chicago yes. and the, the shout out to the... Um, political and and um uh a uh, uh, celebrity a uh, guest he'd he'd eaten with uh, uh eaten with there including jack benny so hooray for the jack benny shout out right um uh that's um the news he talks about um, never ceases to amaze me so this was broadcast december 2nd 1945 and here he's all of a sudden talking about the civil war uproar in china and what should the U.S. do about it? And the hawks in um, D.C. government and the military talking about, should we start war with China? What are we supposed to be doing right. now that we've got this atomic bomb capability? Um, uh, and yet, when should we be um, uh, kowtowing to what the United Nations says or the Atomic Energy Commission? What is America's role? In yeah, this what's world? our place in the world? They're like, they don't even know at that point what our place in the world yeah, should be. They don't know with the nuclear bomb. It's a brand new thing. They've just gotten a hold of the nuclear bomb. Do you use it on all your enemies now? And, and you go, oh, well, would you use it proactively and say, let's attack China? And and I don't, I, you yeah. don't know what, uh, how to deal with this. We're learning our place in time. And it's so interesting to hear in real time, somebody wondering about all of these things. Now, I mean, you just go be horrified by the things he's, suggesting might happen right sure sure it's 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 showing that it it may only be sort of what 45 uh you know 75 80 years ago however long i'm sorry my math is not good today but um it's exactly 75 years ago that's why we played five years ago but um uh, indeed, just a window into thinking of the you know ways of thinking in the past, yeah, and the uh, um, and the freedom of radio. Even though this is commercial radio, that he can get out there and say 
these kind of things, um, right. you know, so without censorship is, I think it's just fascinating. So I, is this a, a time I wanted to say I had done do, uh, a little researcher, Kathy, have found a, um, a review of Orson's program here from yes. when it debuted. This is a review from Variety um, that I'll post, that we'll post to, to Buck's website. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it dated September 26th. But um, given how, when we've had Terry with us, and yeah. we sort of talked, we wonder how the show was sort of understood at the yeah. time, was it right. controversial? This um, uh, uh, little review um, says some prescient things that I'm interested that we seem to agree with. And I want to just uh, uh, quote briefly. Go for it. It says, Orson Welles is now a commentator, no less. The sponsor, Lear Radio, is putting all its ethereal eggs in one basket betting on him to come through with a large enough Hooper rating in an early Sunday afternoon, 15 minute gab session. This is variety language um, <laughs> in, uh, in uh, to help sell his comparatively unknown name in the radio set maker field. Whether the time slot is strong enough is questionable because it's Sundays at one, but the program is one of the biggest little shows on the air. Wells definitely has bridged the gap between drama and commentary. He apparently has been given free reign to project his own views uh, anent current topics because the bankroller ducks possible repercussions with a statement at the beginning of the stanza that the opinions expressed by the star are his own. A staunch liberal, uh, politically and otherwise, Wells spent most of the time on the first show talking about the thing he knows that a show business. But then he go, it goes on, he gives a review of this first show that he's also talking sort of politics and international affairs. And when are we bringing the, the boys home from the war and him traveling in Mexico? Right. This ends. There's no doubt about it. He's a clever raconteur projecting his material like a master showman, holding the attention of his audience every second of the way. The commercials spieled by a network announcer were brief and failed to distract, detract from the thoughts the star had elicited. It was a breezy session. Excellent. So uh, I'm just, I'm intrigued that um, Variety in September, 1945, we sense the same thing, 75 years ago. Yeah, I was gonna say, it sounds like we could have wrote that article. Thing. I mean, we would, yeah. we would say essentially the same thing. Uh, we, yeah. I find this whole so. thing to be a breath of fresh air to all my podcasts, just because they are so locked in time and and they are so uh set in their format and things whereas his show is very or well we've seen it varies from week to week it varies from piece to piece how long he's going to spend on it he, he covers so much ground and and every week you just don't know where it's going to go and so that to me as a listener today sucks me into it every time i'm like where's he gonna go today what's he gonna talk about how is this gonna be a political one is this gonna be more of an insider hollywood one is this gonna be sort of just his philosophy you sort of get all of that and um, man it's amazing so i, I just love these so anyway I, I hope everybody's gonna love this one today and uh we'll keep bringing them to you every week so enjoy and we'll see you next time orson wells speaking come to call for another talk about people and the things they're doing all over the world. We'll get to that in just a minute. It is estimated that 15 million families are waiting to buy new radios for their home. 
Needless to say, such a market is bound to attract all kinds of manufacturers. Some will be sound old-timers with sets that have been made for years. Others will want only to cash in on the big demand. This is why we want you to know about the background and unique position of Lear in the radio industry. Lear has been making the most exacting kind of radio since 1930. Radios for airmen. The kind of radios men stake the safety of their planes and passengers upon. This is why Lear has become known as the name men fly by. Now this long experience, foresight, and the ingrained habit of meticulous manufacture are being turned to building especially fine home radios. These radios can start out new as tomorrow, yet benefit by a background second to none. Lear radios will have features never seen in home radios before. For example, there is the Lear wire that remembers. This is a method of making recordings on a wire that is built right into the set. Snap a switch, and you make lifetime recordings of your good times. Or without a sound being heard, you record broadcasts from the air to hear later and as often as you wish. This is typical of the fine things you can expect in Lear radios. So before you settle on any radio for your home, be sure to see and hear the Lear. L-E-A-R. Now Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Ladies and gentlemen, this broadcast, this particular broadcast, comes to you from room 942 of the Hotel Ambassador East in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, why Chicago? Well, that one's easy. I'm on my way east. I finished shooting a picture and wound up the last day of my latest Friday. Started toward New York by plane for a short business trip. The business, in case you're interested, was a talk with Cole Porter about the musical comedy we're doing together. I say I started towards New York because that's the best the airline could do. They couldn't promise me LaGuardia Airport, just a sporting spurt in that direction. By yesterday noon, the closest I'd gotten to the bright lights of Broadway was Oklahoma, and I do not mean the musical comedy. You know, that's where I was cast away of a bleak blue dawn of Saturday. I didn't notice any ballet dancing, and nobody was singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oklahoma, it turns out, is also a state, and has been running even longer than the show. I'll be frank with you, friends, as a traveler fresh from the place, I can't tell you much about it. I spent what seems like many years there yesterday, but I'm confident that there's more to Oklahoma City than a crowd at the airport and a chorus of stern airline officials chanting at regular intervals the dark words, Sorry, Mr. Wells, there's nothing for you. Sorry, Mr. Wells, we haven't got a thing on this plane. Well, as the hours dragged on, I begged and pleaded for permission to go into the city for a bite of food and a little sleep until the word of my reprieve should come along, but I was told that the hotels were full... And if I ever wanted to get out of Oklahoma, I'd better live within paging distance of the airfield. Somebody was finally obliging enough to find me an old couch in the storeroom, and rolling my shoes up in my coat for a pillow, your obedient servant prepared himself for some much-needed shut-eye. But the shut-eye never came. No, not really. The news had somehow reached the good folk of Oklahoma that a visitor from Hollywood was in their midst. This intelligence seemed to have been telegraphed from territory to territory by drum or smoke signal because an unending stream of curiosity seekers commenced solemnly filing past my sordid little couch in the storeroom. I kept my eyes closed and tried to fool myself and the folks into thinking I was asleep, but every now and then again I, I felt in my ear the hot breath of my public. And lines like, Hey, Mildred, who says it's Van Johnson? It's only Orson Welles. And he looks worse than he does in the movies. Lines like that 
kept me from nodding. All in all, I felt a good bit like the corpse of Mr. Lennon in his glass trophy case in the Red Square and every bit as dead. My visitors, however, were a lot less reverent. I think it was because these morbid crowds were slowing up the efficient workings of the airport that I got out of Oklahoma City at all and as close to New York today as the Ambassador East Hotel of Chicago, Illinois. Why am I broadcasting from my room instead of the radio station, you may well ask. Well, you know, the, if you knew the housing shortage, if you know what it's like these days in this fair city, you'd understand why I don't dare to leave this hard-earned cubicle unguarded even for the 15 minutes this radio show is supposed to take. Well, actually, I'm very glad to be in Chicago. That's by way of being my hometown, you know, and of course I'm very lucky to be at the Ambassador. I'm lucky to have hotel space at all at the Ambassador, and... The ambassadors, all of us know, who know hotels throughout the world is one of the best of all possible hotels. Dear Ernie Byfield, dear Mr. Manager, dear room clerk, are you listening? Of course, what makes the ambassador East really grand is the pump room, that small but regal little saloon a few stories below this microphone. If you haven't been to it yourself, you've seen pictures of the pump room in Life magazine. I don't know where else. It's the place where Joe Stalin sends all the caviar the Russians can't eat where half the beautiful people, the notable and the notorious, are to be found between noon and midnight almost any Chicago day. It's where Bert Allerton, one of the best close-up magicians who ever lived, vanishes bird cages for the customers by the fitful and expensive flicker of crepe Suzettes and cherry jubilees. As a matter of fact, almost everything you eat in the pump room comes to you swaddled in flames, a devilish conceit of that most diabolical of all Bonifaces, the aforementioned Mr. Ernest Byfield. In the pump room, even the humble hamburger is thrust upon you, spitted on a fiery sword. It's all very grand looks, and unless you're very Spartan indeed, you're likely to enjoy it as much as I do. The pump room is what it is for many reasons. It's what it is because Chicago is what it is. Because railroads long ago, and for their own mysterious reasons, decided that you can't go from the Pacific to the Atlantic coast without changing trains in the Windy City, Chicago became the crossroads for show folk and the dignitaries of government and people like that. And quite apart from being one of the best of the big towns of the earth, Chicago, for the people who move around the earth a good bit, has come to mean a place for a hot bath and such other refreshments and relaxations as the weary traveler seeks in the wayside inn. Last week, you know, they started direct air service between Chicago and London. Soon they'll be flying from here to Timbuktu, swifter than the arrow from the Tartar's bow, which means that Ernie Byfield's pump room will remain, even in the age of jet propulsion, one of the stopping-off places for those busy folk, some useful and undecorative, some useless but nice to look at, who are helping to shrink this shrinking globe of ours. As I say, the pump room is what it is because Chicago is what it is, and Chicago is one of the most extraordinary of all cities, one one of the most authentically metropolitan, I think. Sure, the climate isn't exactly perfect. I remember Ring Lardner saying that there are two seasons in Chicago... Winter and August. But you know, there's a spirit in this town, something grim and friendly at the same time, threatening and thrilling at the same time. You won't find anywhere else in the world. And to stop off here between planes or trains would be a great experience, even if the food wasn't so good in the pump room. I've dwelled on these matters of food because, as my tailor keeps pointing out to me, I'm very fond of eating. And in this brave new world, growing up under the lengthening shadow of the tin can... There are precious few places where the eating for any money is still civilized. Besides, the pump room is a place of many memories. There's a table there, right at the door, that's permanently reserved for your obedient servant and for 
the fabulous Gertie Lawrence when she's in town for the immortal Jack Barrymore when he was in the world. Jack, you know, played here in Chicago for over a year. And week after week throughout that year, I used to fly into Chicago just to sit at that table with Jack to tell stories and to talk about the shows we wanted to do together. We did, I remember, all five acts of Othello more than one night at that table. I don't know what else. I've sat there into many a long night swapping gags and kicking cabbages and kings around with friends like Alec Wolcott, Thornton Wilder, and Ruth Gordon, Helen Hayes, Kit Cornell, Marlena Dietrich, George Jessel, Henry Wallace, George M. Cohan, Wendell Wilkie, Lionel and Ethel Barrymore, Lana Turner, Yasha Heifetz, Eric Johnson, Mrs. Roosevelt, and Jack Benny. Not all at the same time, mind you. Different times. And my gosh, what times they were. I've helped Morgenthau, Mr. Henry Morgenthau, map out a bond drive at that table, and I've wooed my wife there and written political columns for the newspapers, and I've just eaten dinner. So it's nice being stranded in Chicago. It always is. Coming back to that table in the pump room is like coming home. Like the man says, shall I not take my ease in my inn? But I learned from the mail I get from you that my gentle listeners don't tune us in on Sunday mornings just to hear about good eats and good eating places. For you who want a word about the newest book, let me recommend a novel by Arthur Miller called Focus. It's the gripping tale of an anti-Semite who falls victim to anti-Semitism. And if that sounds like nonsense, please, friends, read Focus and find out for yourself how much sense Mr. Miller makes of his melodramatic paradox. It's more exciting than the best thriller of the year. For you who want a word about the latest movie, I haven't anything to say because I haven't seen anything for a month I'd advise you to see. Then I've missed a number of the newest. For you who like the play, I'll have something to report after a week of play going in Manhattan. For you who worry over the front pages of the papers, who actually read the editorials, for you the word, my word anyway, isn't so good. Today, three months after VJ Day, the United States is at loggerheads with its allies of a few weeks ago. The situation in China is very, very bad. I think the choice in China is clear. But our American Foreign Office doesn't feel that way. We cannot intervene in China to restore the status quo. There are too many Chinese for that, 400 million of them. And there are those who say that any army we put into the field in China would be insignificant. Even the atomic bomb would not crush the resistance of those who oppose Chiang Kai-shek. Our relations with Russia are now at the zero level. Our note on Iran is tantamount to an ultimatum something which cannot be enjoyed by the American people while our wounded are still waiting for their first scars to heal. That's the situation Mr. Burns and Mr. Truman find themselves in. When Mr. Hurley resigned, there was panic and consternation. The shoot from the hip boys dug up a new ambassador in a few hours. It was a stopgap appointment. Actually, General Marshall will not be our ambassador to China. He's only the personal emissary for the president, and his appointment will be viewed as the prelude to military aid for China from the United States in greater quantity. This is natural, I think, because of his military rank. Tell you more about this in just a minute. But now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. For more than 15 years, Lear has been building fine radios, but only aviators got them. Now you will be able to have a radio set for your home made with the same engineering foresight and the same precise manufacture. You'll find Lear home radios beautifully designed and made with the master craftsman's touch. Some include television, some have automatic record changers, some FM and world scanning shortwave, some the wire recorder I described before. All consoles will have a surprise feature that we'll tell you about soon. 
And right here, there's a surprise. With all the fine features of Lear radios, they're right along in price with sets that do not offer nearly so much. The fine console combination that has television and everything sells for about $500. And at the other end of the line, there's a good-looking, capable table model at $19.95. We'll keep you posted on when you can hear these radios at your Lear dealer studios. Then you'll see for yourself how really fine they are. We know you are going to agree that you can get the most value for your investment when you buy a radio that carries the name Lear. L-E-A-R. And now a final word from Orson Welles. George Marshall is a great American, but the consequences of sending a man of Marshall's position to embattle China may be much more serious than we dare imagine. Intervention in China will merely preserve authoritarianism of the Chiang Kai-shek type for a few more years. In the end, American prestige in China will reach a new low ebb. The basic problem in the, contact, in the conduct of our foreign relations becomes increasingly clear. It looks like there's no one around the White House doing much real thinking or planning in the present critical situation. Until someone like Mr. Truman or Mr. Burns goes off to the country for a long weekend and figures out some way to stop the snowball plummeting downhill on the road to war, we'll be back selling war bonds instead of victory bonds again within 90 days. The situation may be described with the utmost calm as being desperate. Well, the man says my time's just about up. Thanks for letting me come to call, and please join me next week. Thanks for this time. Until then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 1030 at KECA, Los Angeles. <laughs> 